Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. If you're enjoying the second chapter, remember to leave us a rating or review. It helps others to find us, and then they can enjoy it too. This week, we bring you part two of Laura Garwin's journey from scientist to professional trumpet player. We'll hear how serendipity played a role in several of her life changes and why she finally decided that her career in music just couldn't wait any longer. We all know that life is finite. We shouldn't need somebody dying to bring that home. But it was brought home, and I thought, oh, (laughs) if there's something that I want to do with my life, I should do it. So without further ado, here's part two of Laura's story. So... When I thought about continuing into a research career leading to teaching at a university or whatever, I just thought, well, to really get on in research, all but the most special people and really even the special people early in their careers have to specialize. And I didn't want to specialize. I couldn't think about one particular bit of uh, geology that I liked better than other bits. And this is where serendipity came into my life. I wasn't actually under any pressure to think about what I was going to do after my PhD because I had this research fellowship that was going to go on for another year or two. So I went to a conference in Strasbourg where I was going to present some of my work and I was going to the talks that had to do with my little piece of geology. And I met at the conference a guy who worked for Nature and he was going to the sessions about everything. because that was his job. He worked for nature. He was there to find out what was going on in the world of earth sciences. And that just sounded like such a great job to me. You just learn about everything. And then later in the same conference, I ran into another guy who had been doing his PhD with me, but he had finished a little before me. And you're not going to believe this, but this is the absolute truth. I said, oh, hi, Dan, what are you doing? And he said, I've just been offered a job by nature but I'm going to turn it down. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, what? I'm sorry. Um, Do you have a phone number? (laughs) (laughs) And so this was a job. I don't, all these years later, I don't know why he was going to turn it down, but it was a job as a sub-editor, which the American equivalent is copy editor, the person who edits the articles for publication. And as I say, I had not been thinking about applying for jobs because I didn't need to. In fact, at that point, I hadn't written up my PhD yet. But as soon as I got home, I wrote to Nature and I said, Dear Nature, any chance you've got any jobs going? (laughs) You know, I'm just about to finish my PhD and I'd love to work for Nature. And so they gave me an interview. And what I learned later was jobs at Nature did not come up very often. At that time, the editorial staff was tiny. There were literally three people who had anything to do with handling manuscripts on the physical sciences side of nature. And one of them, one of them was the guy I had met Mm -hmm. at the conference who was going to all the talks. And the other person was, had just, the other job was the one that my friend Dan had just applied for, been offered and turned down. So anyway, I was just incredibly lucky. And they offered me the job. And, but I hadn't finished writing up my PhD yet. Anyway, I had to fight a huge battle <laughs> with the editor of Nature, who was a very forceful personality, and he wanted me to start right away. Of course, I thought, a force of nature? <laughs> <laughs> <Very good. 
Oh boy, I'm terrible. Go on. Actually, before he tried to make me start right away, they had to fight a battle for me because they needed to get me a work permit. Oh yeah. Because I was American and uh, didn't have any right to work. And they were particularly hard on people who were students and wanted to stay on after being students. So again, I was incredibly lucky thinking back on this. They got turned down when they applied for a work permit for me. And instead of saying, okay, we'll go to the next person on the list, they said, no, we'll appeal. And in fact, as I was told the story, they had to use, I think his name was Daniel McMillan, who was, Nature was published by Macmillan's, which was like the family firm of Harold Macmillan, the former prime minister. And his descendant, Daniel, was Lord Macmillan. He was in the House of Lords. And as I heard the story, he had to pull some strings to help them get the work permit for me. Wow. So they went to all this trouble for me. They got the work permit. They tried to get me to come right away. And God knows how I had the force of character to stand up to the editor of Nature, who again could have just gone to the next person on the list. But I said, no. I need to finish my PhD before I start. Anyway, long story short, I joined Nature in whatever it was, January of 1986, and and I loved it. I just thought I had died and gone to heaven. It was just the most wonderful thing I could imagine doing. And eventually that took you back to the States for a time. That's right. I I worked my way up through the ranks. Again, I was just, I was lucky with the way people left. (laughs) Within about six months of joining as a copy editor, they changed things around. So I was one of two people who were handling manuscripts in the physical sciences, which was wonderful because it meant that I was handling manuscripts in physics, chemistry, geology, astronomy, climate, environment, basically everything other than biology. And that was just my dream. Then I became then I became the physical sciences editor because the guy who had been my boss left to found another journal. So most of my time in London, I was in charge of a team, a growing team that handled all the manuscripts in physical sciences. Then the editor of Nature, who was always trying to stir my life up, asked me to go to Washington to be the North American editor, to be in charge of the Washington Office of Nature. And as discussed, I loved living in England. I was actually, I was an active amateur trumpet player the whole time I lived in London. That was one of the things I loved about London. There's an amazing amateur orchestra scene where the amateur orchestras play in great venues and play great music. Anyway, so I was really enjoying my life in London. So what I said to him was, I was willing to go Mm. on two conditions. One was that they get me citizenship before I left the country. At that point, I had permanent resident status, which meant that I could work for anyone. But if I left the country for two years, I would have lost that. And at that time, obviously, it was not just my right to work in Britain. It was my right to work in Europe. Right. (laughs) And there was no way I was going to give that up. So nature was great, and they paid for the lawyer to get me citizenship, which was fantastic. And then the second condition was, I really wasn't sure I wanted to go back to the States. So I said, I'll go for a year in the first instance. And it involved everybody moving up. My deputy in London moved into my job, but he was told he could do it for a year, but he might have to go back down after a year. (laughs) He's a very nice guy. (laughs) A lovely guy. He's still the physical sciences editor of Nature. Hi, Carl. So after a year living in Washington, I decided it was okay. And so I stayed there for five years and then left Nature to go work for Harvard, running a research center. What were you doing at Harvard with this research center? As I say, I loved working for Nature. It was just the most amazing thing I could imagine. But when I was in Washington, 
I got interested in the interface between physical sciences and biology, which was a very, it was the new thing. When I was in Washington was when the human genome was sequenced for the first time, and biology was becoming a a sort of big data subject, which it had never been before. It used to be that the way a biologist would describe what was going on with proteins talking to each other was they would draw a cartoon. Apologies, biologists, but... (laughs) (laughs) That was a level because it was so hard to get data in biology that they were dealing with a handful of genes or a handful of proteins and their way of understanding them was by thinking about them in the abstract. Whereas now suddenly with all these new technologies, there were these things called microarrays where you could look at what thousands of genes were doing at a time and drawing cartoons didn't cut it anymore. So they were calling on physicists, engineers, mathematicians, computer scientists to help them deal with the just truckloads of data that were pouring down on their heads. So I'd written about these things that were happening and new institutions were being started to bring physical scientists and biologists together. And one day I got a call from somebody at Harvard who said, uh, we're starting this new research center to bring physical scientists and biologists together, and we're looking for somebody to help run it. Do you know anybody who might be interested? And I was so naive, I didn't understand that that was code for, would you be interested? (laughs) I know, I probably would be like, well, here's a nice list of people who would be very well qualified for the job. I can't remember how the conversation got around to, would you be interested? Again, this is serendipity in the sense that I loved my job at nature. I couldn't imagine leaving nature. I had this unhealthy relationship with nature. You probably identify with this, where it was more than my job. It was my life. I identified with it. And interestingly, uh, it was only the music that sort of helped me not 100% identify with it. Because like, I would stay way too late at work. But on days when I had to go to a rehearsal for an orchestra, I would leave absolutely on time because I had to get to my rehearsal. So that's how I started triathlon exactly the same yeah because I was always working crazy hours and I was like I actually need something in my life that's not this because that was everything two in the morning I'd say okay I think I'm gonna go home and finally I was like this is ridiculous I'd moved to a new city and was like it's time for a hobby right that's interesting (laughs) anyway moving on to you Yeah. So I knew in my head that this was unhealthy. Like friends would phone me up and say, let's do something fun on Saturday. And I'd say, oh, I've got work to do. (laughs) And I knew that was the wrong thing, but it was so hard to, to get away from the job, as it were. And it just so happened that the day the call came in from Harvard asking me about this other job, I was in the middle of launching something for Nature, a physics portal. We were launching this new thing for physicists. It only had the physics content of Nature, and it had articles about articles being published elsewhere in physics, and it had one of my favorite bits. Actually, I stole off that wonderful physicist who taught me when I was a freshman at at Harvard. So this was like my labor of love. And it was just about to launch. And I'd been dealing with the advertising people at Nature to try to sell ads on the back of this because you need to make a living as a journal and subscriptions don't do it on their own. And I'd been working with the ad people for years trying to get more physics ads because that's also how you get respect in a publication in a way. Anyway, that day, the publisher had phoned me up and said, I've been talking to the ad people and it's not doing very well. We may have to shut it down. (laughs) 
<laughs> this was before we'd even launched it. And I was working like 16-hour days. <laughs> so suffice it, I was not in a very good mood. And this call coming in from a university on a day when I was a bit fed up about commercialism just pushed the buttons and overcame the inertia I might otherwise have had about changing the idea even of changing jobs. Yeah. So she, uh, the woman who was speaking to me said, why don't you talk to the director and just can't hurt to talk to him. And as it happened, he was a scientist whom I respected, a biologist whom I respected very much and, and, and had met and had warm feelings towards. And I talked to him and he said, well, why not come for an interview? He <laughs> can't hurt. Because, <laughs> you know, it was really like cutting the umbilical cord, leave, leaving nature. But I did go for the interview and, and it seemed like such a different thing. And once I'd made the decision, it was fine. I thought, oh God, have I done the right thing? But it was fine. I made the leap. So you spent, did you say five years at Harvard then doing that? So yes, I had spent five years at Nature in Washington and then five years at Harvard. My expectation wasn't that I was going to spend only five years in my second job. These days, people change jobs so often. But my dad, he joined IBM straight out of his PhD and still works for IBM. And he's retired officially uh, and has been for 27 years or something <laughs> like that. But he still has an office at IBM. And if it weren't for COVID, he would still be going there two days a week. And he did all sorts of other things on the side, consulting for the government or whatever. But my image of somebody in a job was that they start the job and they stay in it. And of course, the world has changed. But it wasn't surprising to me that I was in my first job for, what did we say, 16 years. But we got this new center off the ground. And it was centered around young people fellows who came on five-year fellowships and built a lab and did interesting research, bringing these sciences together and then going out into the world. So in retrospect, five years was a good amount of time to be there because I saw one cycle of, of fellows through on average. But then it wasn't that I was, with every transition in my life so far, wasn't that I was looking to leave what I was doing. It was that I felt a tug to do something else. That makes sense. And it's interesting because friends of mine who are my age, who after I changed career, after I you know, went into music, would talk to me and say, oh, I'm so envious of you. I feel stale in what I'm doing, but I can't think of what to do next. What did you do? But with me, it was never, it wasn't that. It wasn't that I felt it's time to leave. What am I, and searched around for something to do next. It's that something came and made it impossible to stay. <laughs> right. Except for that one day when I was pissed off <laughs> with nature. So many people make a move because they're unhappy versus having this pull. And I think having this pull probably has led to some of your success because it's not like you just thought anything else, anything but this. Yeah. And because you have so many broad interests, it seems so far there's always been the next thing that makes sense because it's something either you've been doing your whole life or, as you mentioned, the serendipity. You're probably rare as someone who's loved a job and just still has other things. to. St I'm ready to move on because there's other things I want to accomplish. Or Yeah, what I said to myself when I was leaving nature was, yes, I love it, but life is finite and I could keep doing this thing till I drop dead. But why not try something else? I love it. But I could love something else. And in a way, it's diminishing returns. You've loved something for however many years. 
yes, you'll get more love, <laughs> but there are other things. So that was when I was leaving nature. When I came to leave Harvard, it was a, a life event. Yeah, actually, coincidentally, it goes back to the man I mentioned. This was, he was the jazz trumpet player mm -hmm. who we were together for many years, but then stopped being together, but we were still very good friends. Mm -hmm. And he, he died when I was at Harvard, and he died too young. And there was a lot left. He wasn't just a trumpet player. He, he was a watercolor painter. He was amazingly good. He redid his whole house by himself. He restored a vintage car by himself. He did model airplanes. He could just do anything. But especially the painting and, and these sort of big projects, he had a lot left to do with his life that he never got a chance to do. I, oh, and then the other thing that was happening at the same time, I had taken trumpet lessons on and off all through my professional life and had played as an amateur trumpet player. Uh, semi-professional. Sometimes I got paid a bit for it. When I was at Harvard and living in the Boston area, I was taking lessons pretty regularly with a teacher who was quite inspirational. And I was seized of the idea that I wanted to become a better trumpet player. But I had quite a demanding day job. So I could practice maybe an hour before work, an hour after work, something like that. And it didn't seem like enough to get better. Which it sounds like so much for someone who maybe is more of a hobbyist and doesn't have it, it isn't so serious about it. Two hours a day is a pretty chunky bit of practice. Obviously, you were pretty serious about getting better. Yeah, and I just, yeah, I was serious about getting better. And I had uh, role models or people who I wanted to play like that. Mm. I would go to concerts and hear my teacher playing a Mahler symphony. And I was like, that's what I want. You know, it was very identifiable. So it was in the middle of this that my friend Colin died. And it was brought home to me very forcefully. We all know that life is finite. We shouldn't need somebody dying to bring that home. But it was brought home. And I thought, oh, <laughs> if there's something that I want to do with my life, I should do it, <laughs> right? And of course, there were all the thoughts of, I'm however old I was at the time, late 40s. Yeah. Have I left it too long? But I thought, what I don't want to do is wake up 10 years from now and think back to 10 years ago and think I should have done it then. And also, I thought, what's the worst that can happen? This was harder than than leaving nature. It was both harder and easier. It was harder than leaving nature because when I was leaving nature, I was staying in the same general realm. Scientific publishing, scientific administration. Basically, I was hanging out with scientists. That's what I did for a living. But this was completely different. It was easier, though, because I was leaving somewhere. I'd only been for five years. And although I was enjoying it, it wasn't my identity the way nature had been. But I said, what's the worst that can happen? And here's Here's where I was very fortunate. I didn't have kids. I didn't have anybody I was responsible for. It was just me. I had savings. I'd done good jobs for however many years, and I'm a frugal person. I just, I had that, what's the word, security blanket, or I had a bit of leeway. So I thought the worst that can happen is I go uh, to music college for three years. I finish music college. I'm a better trumpet player, but not good enough to be a professional trumpet player. I was sufficiently confident that my CV would and my connections would still be good enough that I could get back into the world I'd left one way or another. 
win. I can go back to something of my old life, but I'm a better amateur trumpet player than I was before. It's funny, the word everybody used, and still uses, if I tell them, you know, what I've done, the word everybody uses is brave. But it didn't feel brave to me. It just felt like the thing I really wanted to do. I know, I do hear people say it was brave for you to make that decision or try that new thing. And it doesn't feel like that in your own life. I, I know that sounds like a really simple way to put it, but it's just the next step of your life. I think it's brave what you're saying in your late 40s, going back to school and trying something that's really out of the realm of what you'd been doing. But you already knew you loved it. Yeah. It's just the next, it's the next chapter, if you will. <laughs> I was going to say the next step of your life. And it, it seems scary, but really logical to me. Yes. And of course, in, in the context in which we're talking, and I've listened to, to some of your other episodes, yeah, people, it's just something people do. <laughs> and probably increasingly, people won't use that adjective because it'll just seem more, more natural. What challenges did you find suddenly being back at college? Like you said, you had some savings, but I imagine there were financial challenges. There probably were some sort of challenges based on you being a different age bracket than the majority of the students. Did you find anything like that? I felt very welcomed. I, I was worried in anticipation that it would be so weird, me being so much older uh, than the other students. And in fact, the very first week that I was there, I was walking down the corridor and two students, probably undergrads, because at the Royal College of Music, they have undergrads and postgrads. Two students were coming towards me, and one of them said, what are you going to do this weekend? And the other one said, oh, probably get plastered. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that probably wasn't the exact word they used. But, but I, th and I just thought, oh, I've not, I'm, that's not the stage of my life that I'm in. <laughs> Although actually since then, I have thought I probably should have spent more time in the pub when I was at the college because most of one's connections seem to come from spending time in the pub. I think part of the challenge was just that I was in a different place in my life socially. Right. Although I made some very good friends there who are my friends to this day. We formed a brass quintet at the college and we still play together and or in this environment have Zoom calls together. And they're now some of my closest friends. The social life of going to the pub at opening time and staying till closing time, which I did do when I was a geology undergraduate, even if I knew that it's a good way of networking, I can't bring myself to do it as much as I probably should. Uh, I think a mental challenge was was trying not to compare myself to, to people too much. And this is a, I think this is a constant challenge for any of us, and maybe particularly in the arts, I'm not sure, in that the people I was with, mm -hmm. a lot of them had been living and breathing music constantly since the age of six. They'd gone to junior college, a lot of them, every Saturday growing up before they went to senior college or these hot houses, or the postgrads might have just come from three years of music college. Whereas I had been coming from my demanding job, trying to practice an hour or two hours a day. So I felt very behind. But it doesn't do any good to compare yourself mm -hmm. to the other people. And I guess another good thing I learned at the time was, it's good to have goals but not to think about all the things I want to do that I can't do in terms of my playing. And it's easy to look and see how far I am from being able to do that, but it's better to look back and see how far I've come. 
Because no matter where you are, you've come from somewhere that's where you weren't able to do some things you can do now. And it's a much more positive thing to focus on those things other than the things you can't yet do. I was thinking because yesterday I was in a, well, I was on a workshop that they talked about sort of bite-sized goals. And there's a quote from Neil Gaiman about there being a mountain. And you can see the mountain in the distance, completely paraphrasing. But if it's only about getting to the top of the mountain, you'll never get there because the mountain's huge. But if you see that the mountain's in the distance and you can find yourself getting closer to the mountain, and I really liked that, but even better than bite-sized goals is sometimes actually taking the time to look back and see how far you've come. Because I don't think we spend enough time doing that. Yeah, I think that's right. It's something that I'm particularly bad at is I tend to compare myself to other people. So uh, even in the triathlon club. <laughs> I was going to say, that is so something I know about you from the triathlon. Okay. <laughs> you are a musician now, professionally. You graduated. How old were you when you graduated? I know. Sorry about the age question. It's not a favorite of anyone's, but. I, I, I've given up trying to soft pedal my age. I'm going to own it now. As you should. <laughs> um, You've done plenty. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, except there is this second chapter thing where maybe I've done plenty in a previous life, but it doesn't really count in my current life. No, that's you comparing yourself to other people again. Yeah, all right. All right, we won't turn this into a therapy session. So I finished in 2009, so I must have been just getting on for 52. Yeah, but in a way, it was still pretty easy at that point because... I had just graduated. And you put on your CV, graduated from the Royal College of Music in 2009. And I didn't put graduated from Harvard in 1977. <laughs> right. <laughs> we haven't mentioned this, but you're saying Royal, so we know that you're back in the UK at this point. I basically had two choices when I was applying to music college. I could either stay in Boston where I was, which I loved, and inertia has always been a powerful. Actually, as I say that, I seem to contradict that, but believe me, in my own head, Inertia is very powerful. And if you'd asked me when I was applying to music colleges in Boston and in London, I would have said, if I get into New England Conservatory, I'm going to stay. Because at the moment, at that time, I was living a 20-minute bus ride from New England Conservatory. I loved where I was living. I liked Cambridge, Mass. But when I got into both New England Conservatory and the Royal College of Music, I went to an open day at the Royal College. And oh my God, London is just such an amazing place to do music. Boston has the Boston Symphony and one and a half sort of minor opera companies, apologies, Boston. London has four world-class symphony orchestras, two world-class opera companies, ballet, everything. There's just so much. And then the college also put on a good open day, and it just seemed like it was going to be a wonderful place to go. Plus, I had lived here. I had lots of friends here. I, I think you had talked once about having two homes, and that's the exact same way I feel. When I was flying back to London, to um, go for the open day. And I had left my home in Cambridge, Mass, which really felt like home. As the plane was landing in London, I felt like I'm coming home. You do end up calling a lot of different places home, or at least a few different places where you grew up, where you lived. Where my friends are. And for me, that's what's so important. Exactly. But yeah, so I was back in London. And when I finished at the college, the obvious choice was to stay in London because this is where my connections were. The idea of just turning up in Boston and saying, hello, <laughs> I'm a recent graduate. I'm a musician. <laughs> yeah, hire me. And what made it really easy, and actually the smartest thing I ever did in my life, bar none, was that I already had a flat that I had bought when I had my job at Nature. And the smartest decision was not selling it when I moved back to the United States. Some people say, oh yeah, what a great investment. The reason I didn't sell it was 
I thought there was some chance I would come back. I didn't know. And I had looked at literally a hundred flats before I bought this flat. I was the same. Really? I was the same. Uh, yes, the first flat I had here, it took, I would say, even more like 150. I had a wow. stack that was huge of all the brochures they had handed me and everything. But it was so, it's so hard here. The balance of affordability and location and having any space. And oh my God, I looked at so many. Yeah. Yes. So I understand. Wait, but what do you say looked at? Did you physically look at them? Or you just yeah. looked at them in a brochure? Yeah, good. I physically went to these places. Yeah. It was me different too. from the flat I live in now, which had a lot to do as with location because it's close to the triathlon club. But yeah, I physically looked at, oh, and the, some of the things they showed me, I was like, for the amount of money that you're telling me this flat costs, you've got to be hitting me. Oh, I know. When I came back, my original idea was that I would rent a flat mm. because my flat is actually a two bedroom flat. When I bought a flat, they were nothing like they are now in terms of price. And I thought, I don't need a two bedroom flat. I'm a starving music student. And I'm just going to get a cheap flat somewhere near the world. Actually, not anywhere near the Royal College of Music because you can't afford to live in Kensington. And I looked at flats when I came back to go to that open day. And they were so expensive. But yeah, so I decided to stay in I decided to stay in London because all my connections were here. <laughs> I don't know why we're talking about flats. So I stayed because I had my connections and I with my teachers and my colleagues. And so I have been a freelance musician ever since. And I'm still climbing the greasy pole. I don't love doing auditions. You have to do auditions. Who does? Ugh. Yes, I did auditions. I got onto uh, one extra list, but I haven't gone in with the big orchestras yet. That's still an ambition. I'm on the depth list for some West End shows. I would love to play in the West End. I was about to sit in on Les Mis. It was supposed to be three days after this lockdown started. No. <laughs> I hate, I've heard that from so, not that exactly, but I've heard similar stories from so many people. It's so frustrating. Yeah, there is an element of starting over again. Will people have forgotten me? <laughs> I did get to do some work in lockdown. I There's an orchestra that I play with regularly called Covent Garden Symphonia. We managed to do a, a recording session actually for Fitbit in November. And I had some gigs in November and December, some carol concerts where sadly the congregation had to wear masks and weren't allowed to sing. I got to hear you play around Christmas time. And did you? Yes, I did. Not at a concert. Oh, yes. You gave oh, us yes. a special oh. concert for Wilston. And I do have to say a Zoom Christmas party felt infinitely more festive with a little trumpet music. Oh, good. Whether you can sing or not, it was a good one. So we did get to sing because we were Zooming. So I think you're downplaying how far you have come, though, because I do feel you're like, oh, I'm still climbing the greasy pole. I've been a freelancer. But you've played with some pretty, you've played a lot. You've managed to make a career off of a freelance musician life. Yeah, combined with some other things. I've done some freelance work for nature as well to help pay the bills, put food on the table, <laughs> done a bit of tutoring. But yeah, I think we all, I think every performing musician, almost every performing musician does something other than perform. Most people combine it with teaching their instrument. I took a conscious decision not to do that because other kinds of freelance work are more flexible. Mm. So for instance, if I'm doing some writing or editing, 
I can do that at midnight in my flat. The deadlines are usually long enough that if I suddenly get a call to go play, I don't have to turn it down because I'm teaching a student in an hour or whatever. I am making a career and I'm enjoying it. And one thing, one thing that I was reminded of these few times that I got to play during lockdown was just the sheer joy of playing with other people. I have been keeping up the practice in my practice room, but it's not the same. And I have done some recordings where you record your own part and then they mix it afterwards. And boy, is that not the same. No, definitely not. So, you know, this recording session we did with Covent Garden Symphonia, where most of us hadn't seen each other for 10 months. There's just the joy of seeing each other as friends and then playing with these wonderful musicians. I am lucky in that a lot of the groups I play in, everybody else is better than I am. Just to, I know, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I, I rolled my eyes. <laughs> I just feel privileged to be playing with them. They are equally privileged to play with you. Thank you very much. I promised everybody we'd talk briefly about you joining the triathlon club as well. So the reason I don't know Laura is because I am her coach for triathlon. You mentioned that you did sports in school, but you came to triathlon, quote unquote, later in life as well. So what kind of inspired you to suddenly decide to become a triathlete? For me, it was really just, I want to keep fit. And I was already cycling a lot. Cycling is my way of getting around London. And I had recently at that point started swimming again at the sports center where the Tri Club is based. And I guess, I don't even know how I learned about the Tri Club. I must have seen some publicity. And I, and I had always hated running. So I thought, okay, I'm already doing two thirds of triathlon. Why don't I just join this Tri Club and learn to like running? And at first, I was the anti antithesis of competitive in that I didn't want to do any events. I just wanted to do it to, to get fit. But the reason Kristen is smiling at this point is that she witnessed that if somebody passed me in the pool, I would suddenly start to go faster. <laughs> Laura says she has one speed, but the minute <laughs> someone passes her, she is suddenly like Olympic caliber. <laughs> Maybe this is turning into a therapy session, but do you think that triathlon has taken the place of trumpet? When you were working your job at Nature, for example, you'd come home and have an hour of practice at night, or you'd have an hour in the morning, and you had obviously a friend network around those, and now you have the whole trumpet thing, and you're wow, putting I, in I as much running that. as you can on the sides what, what and have this sort of friend network of through triathlon. Early on, when I started at the, the Royal College, somebody asked me about my hobbies, and it took me aback because I realized I didn't have a hobby anymore. If somebody had asked that question a month previously, I would have said, music is my hobby. So yeah, so that was weird because I had I never consciously thought in terms of hobbies. So now that you mention it, yes, I suppose triathlon is now my hobby. And especially, I have to say through lockdown, Shout out to Wilsdon Triathlon Club. They've been whoop, whoop. absolutely amazing, giving us a social uh, network as well as helping us keep fit. It's been wonderful. But you also are a huge part of that because Laura is one of our founding members at this point. How many years have you been? Seven? seven? Yeah. So you are officially like, you're one, you cannot even be one of those people who doesn't say like, I'm not an athlete or I'm not a triathlete or anything anymore because you're like a founding member, triathlon club, treasurer. 
Actually, that's something lockdown did because until lockdown, I had hardly, A, at first I didn't want to compete and you guys bounced me into it. We, we had an event and I volunteered at it or I was going to volunteer at it and somebody said, are you going to compete? And I said, oh no, I'm just going to volunteer. And they said, uh, whoa, why don't you compete? And then I, suddenly I was surrounded by five people saying, why don't you compete? <laughs> Yeah, I think we made you. I really do. <laughs> so I did that. In general, I'm a musician. I do most of my work at the weekends. And you have to sign up for an event months in advance because they sell out. And it happened to me more than once that I signed up for an event and then got work and lost my 50 quid or whatever it was because I had to go do work. So that's, again, the one thing lockdown has done for me. A, I have more time. And B, I'm not working on the weekends and I'm doing events. I've done more events this year than I had done in the seven years previously. So yeah. You're probably the only triathlete who has ever said that over lockdown. (laughs) All right. I'm going to go now to my question that I posed to everyone about a quote. Cheesy, but (laughs) do you have one that either you go to or just that you really enjoy? The honest answer is no, I don't have a a go-to quote. If I had one, it probably would have been the Pablo Casals one that popped up last week. Yes. (laughs) Check out last week's (laughs) episode, because that, I was really taken by that when I first heard it, it, about why do you keep practicing? Because I still think I can get better. And uh, actually, that applies in spades to me. But rather than a quote, I think something that drives me and that gives rise to lots of quotes, if you want to look them up, is the whole growth mindset idea. Mm. I came across that just in recent years, and it's been very powerful for me. And just in case people haven't heard of it, it's the idea that we can always get better at things. And it involves the idea that failure is not a bad thing. You see the wonderful ice skater doing her triple axles and you think, oh my God, how does she do that? And you haven't seen the 89 times she fell on her bum on the way there. Yes. Failure is almost the only way we learn. And I realized late on in life that having grown up in a high achieving family and with the idea, more so probably when I was growing up than today, I hope, the idea that they were smart people and, oh, you're a, you're a smart kid and they're the smart kids and the less smart kids or whatever. This idea that intelligence or talent or any human ability is somehow inbuilt and there are some who have it and some who don't, I think is so pernicious. And if you read Carol Dweck, you learn all about this, that just the idea of that can lead you to all sorts of horrible habits, shying away from trying something new because you think you're not going to be good at it. In fact, actually, I did find a quote. (laughs) Now occurs to me. (laughs) Thinking about the growth mindset and shying away from doing something new, Einstein said, anyone who has never made a mistake has never tried anything new. Yeah, I've said this to some of the other people I've chatted with, but I do feel like one of the things I love about this whole idea of bringing a quote is some of the most powerful things that people say on the podcast are their own opinions surrounding what the quote is. I see. I do love a good quote, but I also love when people start looking into or thinking about the quote or the idea of the quote. Uh They always say something that I think is better than the potentially more famous person who initially said it. So I do really like what you said about that. And I love the idea that we have to make mistakes because I think both of us are examples of people who love a lot of different things and want to try new things. And I hope that 
neither of us ever stopped doing that. Mm, absolutely. Us and Einstein. Yes. So on that note, I will say thank you so much for joining me, Laura. It's been a real pleasure to hear about the many chapters of your life and you're really inspirational to me. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you and see you on the track someday. Fingers crossed. We'll be there soon. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.